from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I am your host, Ross Gallagher. And what a show we've got for you. On this week's show, we're covering a bound raises to supercharge AI-powered consumer lending and deliver fairer lending in the process, which is great. Griffin obtains a banking license so they can now finally use, after a long wait, their trademark tagline. And is Monzo's video selfie too cringe for Gen Z? Well, you'll have to listen in and decide that one for yourselves. We'll get into all this and much more on today's jam-packed news show. But first, a few brief messages, so we'll see you shortly. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Hello and welcome LFG people to Fintech Insider. Blockchain Insider. 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Hello and welcome to episode 715 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, Venture Lead at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, it is my wonderful 11FS co-host, uh, David Barton Grimley, who is Global Strategy Director for Embedded Financial Services. David, uh, listen, thank you so much for being here. How are you? And uh, been working on anything good lately? It's a pleasure to be here, Ross, as always. Um, I've been thinking a lot about payments standards. I know that's a super niche thing to be thinking about, but um, ISO 2022, um, the game changer that's uh, that's coming up. I, I think about that a lot. Go figure. <laughs> Love it. All right, great. Well, maybe we can lean on some of that uh, insight in some of our uh, stories as we go through. So, David, great to have you. Um, and now making their debut on Fintech Insider, we have Michelle, he co-founder and COO of Abound. Michelle, welcome to the show. Um, we'll be getting into your news a little later on in the show, really exciting stuff. But maybe now you can just give us what's the top line uh, of what Abound does and maybe a little bit on yourself. Yeah, sure. Hello, everyone. Abound is the AI-driven credit technology company. Our mission is to expand access to affordable loans. We offer low rates by looking at the whole person, not just your credit scores. One of my main motivations to set up Abound is for my personal experience. When I first moved from Singapore to the UK 13 years ago, I came here to work. 
decent pay, stable job, PhD in AI, if it still means something. But no banks wanted to lend £5,000 to me because I was credit invisible in this country. And I was not alone because there are six to eight million thin file customers in the UK and many others who are unfairly treated in this kind of a traditional credit score ecosystem. So I set up a bound with my co-founder three years ago, and we're building a very different lending technology company using open banking and AI. Yeah, it's amazing how, how many um, challenges there are in this space still to solve, Michelle. So looking forward to getting into uh, some of these as we go through the show. And thank you so much for joining us. Um, and then finally, we have a return to FinTech Insider for David Jarvis, the CEO of Griffin. David, listen, welcome back. Great to have you. Again, some exciting news uh, fr- from you guys coming up in the show. Um, I guess maybe what's the one thing that um, our listeners should know about you and also about Griffin? Um, yeah, uh, I don't know about one thing about me. I'm an extremely boring person. Um, but uh, I'll refer to our tagline, which we're finally able to use after trademarking it two years ago. Uh, we are making a bank that you can build on. So uh, actually, we are a bank you can build on. Um, and what that means is uh, we look to be the sort of partner bank for uh, the UK's fintech ecosystem uh, in terms of uh, sitting underneath all of those payments companies, card issuers, wealth tech firms, um, anyone who's holding customer cash somewhere in the stack, there's a bank and we'd like that to be us. Yeah. I mean, a a hugely exciting time for you guys and and nothing boring about it. Um, So looking forward to getting into that one as we go through the show as well. Um, And so with that, um, let's dive right in. Our first story comes from TechCrunch. Uh, with the headline, Open Banking Startup Abound nabs a very specific $601 million to supercharge its AI-based consumer lending platform. So Abound, um, as you just heard from Michelle, is a UK-based consumer lending service. It's doubling down on its ambitions in the space with a big fundraise to fuel its own open banking-based business. The startup has raised a whopping £500 million, or as I said, $601 million at today's rates, that it will be using to help finance loans, to bring more customers onto its platform, and to invest in its technology. The company combines open banking data and machine learning algorithms to build what Abound believes is a better credit score for applicants. So, Michelle, as we said, great to have you here to discuss this one. Um, firstly, obviously, congratulations on the raise. Um, they're big numbers. I'm sure you guys are really excited. Yeah, of course, we are very excited to achieve this, especially under the current environment, which is very tough. And it's also a privilege to onboard a group of top-tier new investors, including Citibank, Waterfall Asset Management, GSR Venture, and K3. And we also had great continuous support from existing investors like Hambro Perks and um, Varan Gold Bank. Yeah, very excited. Yeah, and, and look, you mentioned, obviously, the, the difficult climate. It's a difficult time to try and raise capital. And you mentioned some really impressive names there that have sort of um, come in and back to you guys. I guess that's a real testament to the work that you guys are doing. And I guess the work that still needs to be done in this space. That's right. Yeah, we have uh, achieved a lot in the last three years. um, But where we are today is far from what we want to be, because there are so many customers who are excluded from that kind of traditional credit score, like myself, when I came to UK 13 years ago, and we have a lot of other customers who were not able to get affordable loans from from traditional lenders. And this uh, funding is going to give us a lot of firepower to support our uh, business growth to help more people. Yeah. And, and look, like we said, it's such an important mission. I guess you've sort of touched on it a little bit, Michelle, but maybe 
worth just spending a, a minute or two just uh, is on the typical sort of a bound customer? What do they look like? What's their lending profile? Um, our customers are mostly young working force. So the average is about 32 years old. Average annual income is 30,000, which is aligns with UK average. And a very interesting half female and half male, which doesn't seem to be very common for, for a fintech company in your space. Um, and our loans are unsecured. It's between 1,000 to 10,000 pounds up to five years. Average loan size is about 5,000 pounds and average terms is two and a half years. Amazing. Amazing. It's that kind of thing for me of like, people don't necessarily want a loan, do they? They want the things that, you know, sort of allow them to to progress and move forward in their lives. And it sounds like that's exactly the sort of niche that you guys are servicing. Um, and then I suppose just one sort of final question before we move on to uh, some of our other panelists and bring those guys in. I suppose the the, the AI element is, is, is probably relatively unique in terms of what you guys are doing at a band. How are you sort of combining the AI and the open banking aspects of the business? Uh, that's a great question. Our technology combines AI and um, open banking to understand the customer's true affordability instead of treating them as a walking credit scores. Um, with the customer's consent, we read their real-time bank transaction data, analyze how much they earn, how much they spend, and how much is left every month. So this way, we can understand much better they can afford to repay our loan or not. That is a true affordability-based approach. Our technology allows us to make better decisions, take less risk, and offer lower rates to the, uh, to the customers. Over the last two years of lending, our actual default rate has 70, uh, 70% reduction than the market expectation. What it means is that if the market expects 10 people to default in our portfolio, we only have three. So it's very powerful technology we have built in-house. So DBG, I mean, what Michelle's just been saying, you know, Pretty incredible just in terms of obviously delivering better um, outcomes for the sort of end users, also underperforming the market when it comes to, to default rates. So actually a real uplift, I guess, on, um, you know, sort of what we're used to in this space, right? Yeah, and it, it just goes to show you moving forward the potential of um, getting technology right in the lending space. Um, you know, the the consequences of having a high default rate is absolutely massive. And the consequences of moving beyond your classic um, credit profile um, are very high, which is why you find a lot of incumbent financial institutions not really wanting to to move into some of those, I guess what they would call edge cases. But this is really where open banking comes in. And I think it's just such a wonderful and powerful story um, that Abound have managed to raise this quantity of money. I think it should be a real kick up the bum to the wider open banking and, and lending industry to say there is a way to be using data that is being generated by people in their financial lives outside of your classic credit file that can be extremely powerful to um, to lending. Um, and it, it is allowing, and you're seeing this all over the world, it's allowing new fintech lenders to create very bespoke uh, solutions for customer segments that they're experts in. I mean, if you look at Michelle, for example, you mentioned that as an immigrant to this, to this country, um, that you had a very thin thin credit file. I mean, that, that background is absolutely fundamental to the kind of change I think that we need to, that, that we need to see all over the world. Yeah, and, and and being able to get, I think what Michelle mentioned, like a, a, an accurate view of actually true affordability and being able to do that in real time or near real time rather than trying to proxy it and being six to eight weeks out of date like we're used to from some of the traditional uh, the traditional credit scores. David, what are your thoughts on this one so far? Yeah, I mean, I think um, 
like uh, first and foremost, I'm, I tend to be a, pr a product person. And so what I'm really interested in is um, like what's going to come next for you. So you obviously uh, you've kind of you, you've figured out the model. You've got a lot of capital now to scale. What do you see the kind of the the vanguard, the limit? Like where does the what is the next evolution of the like a bound platform look like? Yeah, very, very good question. So um, we have served a lot of customers and there are still a lot of customers that we want to serve. So far, we have been doing a lot on that kind of a direct lending to the um, uh, to the consumers up to 10,000 pounds, as I mentioned. And we have also proven and, and, and built a very powerful credit technology. So the next product, which we are launching now is, um, is a B2B service, which is software as a service. It's basically take our credit technology and, um, and help more more financial institutions, international financial institutions to do what we can do. So the, the product is called Brenda. It is basically a um, credit technology platform. And we are now in discussions with um, our non-competitors in the UK and a lot of European uh, European peers on, um, on, on this space. That, that makes a lot of a lot of sense Michelle actually so so are we talking about a sort of a, I guess a licensing model and that as a, a route to scale and being able to service more customers? That's right, because um, our mission is to massively expand access to affordable loans. We are doing this from um, the first product bound is direct and lending to people who will not be able to get it from traditional lenders. And the second product, which is render, is to help banks and the financial institutions and lenders to, to be able to use our technology to serve more people. Yeah, amazing. And 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 it's it's a model, I think, that, uh, that works, right? You know, you, you sort of prove the technology, you prove the model by sort of going direct to consumer, but then that route to scale through partner banks, et cetera. And we've seen others like Oak North do it and obviously be um, extremely successful. Um, DBG, I think it's difficult to talk about things like um, credit scoring, lending, all of those things without thinking about it in the context of what's going on now with the, the sort of cost of living crisis. So maybe just sort of your thoughts on that, you know, how important is it to get lending right sort of at a time like this in particular? Hugely important. I mean, you know, you see these statistics all over the world, but in the UK, for example, the average total debt per household when you include mortgages was about £65,000. Um, and the amount of money owed in the UK has gone up £72 billion since the uh, end of December in, in 2021. So there needs to be an impetus to find a way with the increasing um, interest rates to create lending that's more fair. And I think the regulator in the UK and also all around the world is going to be putting pressure on financial institutions to, to try and create fairer lending products. I mean, the, the good news, I suppose, looking forward is that the profitability coming out of the back of uh, some of the increased interest rates should provide the right kind of impetus to invest in innovation, to invest more in technology and AI, um, to work with companies like Abound to try and create better and fairer um, lending models. But also, you know, fun fundamentally, a lot of this comes down to stepping beyond your traditional credit scoring um, systems using very kind of historical information and, and some information that frankly just, just isn't so relevant, right? Like your current address and and um, you know whether or not you're on the electoral roll. I mean, there's 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 got to be better data points that we can be using, Ross. I think that could that could be creating better lending decisions and fairer lending products. Yeah, that point that you make about it being fairer, I think, is exactly right. You know, back to the previous point, if you can get that true view on affordability, 
and you can better manage for uh, you can better manage for default, then you can offer better pricing and more bespoke pricing to to customers and, and sort of long may it continue. Um, so listen, Michelle, congratulations from us again. We're 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 really excited to see how this uh, how this continues to go and, and and where you guys go from here. Um, but with that, I'm going to move us on. Um, our next story comes from UK Tech News uh, with the headline: Bass platform Griffin secures UK banking license with restrictions. So London-based startup Griffin has become the latest fintech to secure a banking license with restrictions after receiving the nod from the Prudential Regulator Authority, the PRA, and the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA. So Griffin provides tools for financial companies, including customer onboarding, checks and payments. Griffin applied for a UK banking license last year, which it announced alongside its £12.5 million funding round in July. Despite reaching the regulatory milestone, Griffin does face some restrictions over the services it can offer. It can only hold a limited amount of deposits and carry out a limited amount of payment services while in restricted authorization, referred to as mobilization. And during this period of mobilization, Griffin will make developments to its systems and controls, grow its team size, and expand its product offerings. Um, so David, great to have you, David Jarvis, uh, great to have you here to discuss, obviously, what is an enormous milestone Huge congratulations. Um, I know you were on the show back in May 2022 talking about your application. So how long has this been in the works? Years. <laughs> um, so uh, I think if we, we, we first uh, called and then emailed the PRA in, I want to say it was September of 2019, and ended up having our first sit-down meeting with them in November of 2019. So it's been basically kind of three and a half years to get to this point. And although I think that's uh, a little bit longer than is typical, um, we did have to go through a pandemic in the middle of that. So not entirely uh, unsurprising. No, absolutely not. I, I think that's the thing. Like the world's turned on its head a couple of times, right? Since you guys started having these uh, these conversations. So all bets are off. But I love what you said about you sort of... Um, you, you 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 had your, your tagline ready to go for a couple of years. So you guys were obviously always confident that you were going to get there, which, <laughs> yeah, which I really like. Yeah, well, it's, it's funny because um, the regulators are understandably very uh, concerned about people using the term bank when they're not an actual bank, right? And yet, you know, we, we kind of ran through this branding exercise and we came up with the tagline, the bank you can build on. And we were like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, this is just the, like the, the best. This is like, you know, it's like short. It like describes what we do. It's, it's uh, aspirational. And then we're like, oh, I probably can't really use that like for like the next two years. So um, yeah, put in, put in the trademark application and just sat very patiently. Yeah, I can see the excitement when you guys came up with it and then the anticlimax when you realize actually we probably can't use it yet. So let's sit on it for a little bit. Um, so so, so where do you guys, you know, what's the plan? Well, you know, you've got the banking license. Where are you guys going from here? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I mean, you covered this a little bit in the uh, sort of intro, but I would say the major things for us right now are uh, payments integration work. Um, so there are some things that you simply cannot get access to until you are an authorized firm. So uh, now that we are authorized, we get to start to dig in on some uh, technical work. But also uh, for us, I mean, I think that the big thing this year is working closely with a small set of customers who will be the ones that we ultimately sort of launch the business with. And so 
you know, you've already alluded to the fact that um, in the mobilization period, you face some some fairly intense restrictions in how much activity you can take on, but they're sufficiently loose that you can really do quite good sort of user acceptance testing, beta testing, get like work closely with pilot customers and making sure that what you're building actually does what they need it to do. Uh, and then, you know, getting ourselves to a place where, you know, by the end of the year, we're in a position to have our restrictions lifted. And then we're in a position to scale with those customers, having spent the summer and fall, you know, integrating with us and making sure that everything is really geared up for scale. Yeah, nice. Listen, um, that's also a really helpful, I think, um, sort of explanation of like that, that mobilization process, why it's there, what it's for. Um, and I think that's great. I mean, um, it's an incredibly exciting time for you guys. The, the reason it's there is, is basically twofold. So um, mobilization is, a, is a, a feature that is unique to the UK. Uh, so it doesn't exist for uh, within the EU. Uh, as far as I know, it doesn't exist in the US either. And it was essentially created in the wake of this kind of consultation and review period uh, that preceded 2013 that resulted in the creation of the startup uh, or the new um, bank startup unit within the PRA. Um, and one of the pieces of feedback was just like, expecting banks to be in a position where they go from unauthorized to completely ready to trade the next day is not realistic. Um, and it's not realistic for two reasons. A, because of the kind of payment scheme integration work that I kind of already alluded to, but also you run into a really nasty chicken and egg problem around um, just having the necessary capital, right? And so, you know, you maybe have investors who are interested, but who don't want to put in a large check if they're not sure that you're going to be authorized. And so mobilization allows you to become an authorized firm to actually, you know, be, be a bank, demonstrate that you have a product that people want to buy, um, and then to raise the additional capital that you need to actually then run the business and scale it from there. It's a very clever little uh, feature. Yeah, no, absolutely. Completely agree. Um, and, and, and like I said, such, such an exciting time for you guys. Um, DBG, and I've got to be careful with all, all of the Davids. Um, yeah, it's 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 super exciting. I mean, what was your what was your sort of reaction? I know this is a space that uh, you know exceptionally well. I mean, first off, big congratulations to David and the team. Right, um, I think it's amazing for a banking as a service provider to to get regulated, and you are seeing more and more how important it is for BAS providers to you know, receive the regulated regulated cover. Um, and I think I mean, David, David could probably comment on this better than I can, but I think one of the main one of the main reasons for that from a from a customer of a bass um, company point of view is that you you want more or less pretty much everything under one shop, right? You you want to know that the um, technology firm that you're working with also has the right kind of licenses so you then don't have to go to another company and deal with another set of APIs and another set of integrations. Um, in order to do that. So the the license will really allow Griffin to leap forward um, into providing a very, very simple and easy to consume service, but also to then provide other services in, into the future. Um, there's a survey um, run by embedded finance player Vidino, um, which showed that 28% uh, of business leaders said that they would like to see their BAS provider offering access to a banking license as a priority. So you can see why this is a priority for pretty much everyone to get it from, you know, like Griffin, Revolut, all of these, all of these players. So um, major congratulations. What a wait. Thank you. Yeah. I, I think the other thing that's really interesting, which of course we couldn't possibly have known or predicted um, was the, uh, the the return of or the the sort of 
uh, rise of, of interest rates, um, which, you know, a, a year ago when, when pushed on, you know, why is the license so important? Um, you know, there are really like valid reasons, but they're very technical and kind of hard for people to understand around the types of safeguarding or client money accounts you're able to provide to other types of regulated fintechs. Um, but in this environment, the thing that increasingly really matters is that we can pay interest. And, and like that just, it, it, it like, it just completely changes the tenor of the conversation because before, you know, you could get the, the tech folks um, within, you know, our, our sort of target market really excited and you get the product folks excited, but, you know, there's still that activation energy of like, okay, well, we're already set up with this player. Why should we switch to you? Or, you know, why shouldn't we, we kind of build a lot of this in-house? Um, and, and now it's like, well, the answer is like, you could be getting like 3% on your funds. And like, it just, it, it's, it's a very, very, very clear case. Um, so that's been great. Um, although of course we, we couldn't have known that it would turn out in such a fortuitous set of timing. And, and David, do you think that's going to, that's going to factor into fintechs and their considerations around how they now go to market because obviously there's different there's different options isn't there there's e-money licenses and all of that sort of stuff but obviously in this new interest rate environment do you think that's going to be a real consideration for them well i would say uh, like what we are seeing is that basically everybody in the fintech space who touches money um is under intense pressure to figure out some kind of way to bring a savings product to market that uh becomes a part of that portfolio whether they are, you know, uh, a, a lender, whether they're just doing things on the sort of transactional space, you know, across border FX payments, um, like a, a everybody need is is trying to figure out how to do that because their fear is that if they don't do that, they're going to lose market share to a straight up bank, right, to to a high street bank, um, and so that's really interesting uh, for us, and I think it does change the um the dialogue what, what's interesting is that you know the the interest there is driven as much by companies that are already regulated as payments companies electronic money institutions as it is by companies that are completely unregulated um it's uh it's in some ways opens up our market quite a bit more because again you know uh, a, a year ago we were very very focused on companies that were regulated for specific types of things um whereas now you know the fact that there's this just intense interest um from from basically everybody means we have to almost think more carefully about like who, who is our ideal customer rather than just like please please we're a new bank come work with us yeah yeah michelle really keen to to get your thoughts on on this as well and, and licensing in particular what does it sort of what, what does it mean for abound and 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 yeah what, what does it mean for you guys in this context yeah first of all huge congratulations to david and team it's a big milestone to get your banking license. I heard that um, 200 kilo, kilograms of paper is needed for the for the application. Is that true? Uh, I don't think it. I don't think it weighed <laughs> up quite that much, but it was off off the top of my head. I think somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 pages. Okay. So we um, we have a lending license, which is different from banking or e-money license you mentioned, uh, Ross. Our license allows us to lend, but we are unable to hold the customer deposit. We it's a different types of license, and we received it um, seven months after submitting the application. A lot of people told us that it's very quick because sometimes it can take years. Wow. 
Yeah. No, it's... And one thing, actually, I think we're over on this story, DBG, but I'm keen just to sort of get your thoughts on Rails R, or sort of formerly Rails Bank. And, you know, they were once a sort of market leader in this banking as a service space. Obviously, now they're sort of looking at pre-pack administration. They've drawn pretty intense scrutiny from the the UK regulator. Um, so do you think this is likely to sort of play out? Is this going to have an impact um, on on sort of other people coming to market? And, and, you know, the timelines that Michelle and sort of David suggested in terms of getting licensed? Perhaps not in terms of the the, uh, the timeline for getting licensed, but it, it's definitely a little bit scary out there. I mean, if you look at what's happened recently with Solaris in Germany, um, with the German regulator um, wanting that every single new customer that Solaris bring on board has to be has to be signed off effectively by the regulator. And a lot of banking as a service businesses over the last couple of years have come under a lot of regulatory scrutiny just for the, the kinds of customers that they've been working for. There's a crypto component to that with the crypto crash. Um, some have been caught up a little bit in FTX. So I think it's, it's, um, the short term is looking like a lot of regulatory attention, but the long term, I think prospects for the industry are extremely bright. And I think another thing just to say about this, you know, as onerous as, um, compliance can be at times, this is very important. Um, you know, I think embedded finance is still very much in its, in its infancy, particularly when you think about things like embedded lending and, and, and savings, right? So it is important that the entire industry learns and everybody gets this right. So ultimately it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. And a really nice way actually to close that out. We're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back shortly. Buying a home is the biggest and most significant purchase most people make in their lifetime. And it doesn't matter where in the world you're buying, the process is rarely easy. In our latest report, experts from our 11FS Ventures team look at why the home buying process is broken, how we can fix it, and the massive commercial opportunity it presents for banks and fintechs. Download your free copy at 11FS.com slash homebuying. That's 11FS.com slash homebuying. Okay, welcome back to the show. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a reminder to go check out the latest episode of our FinTech Insider Insight Show. Has financial services only been built for half the population? That is the question that Kate Moody is getting to grips with, with help from guests from JP Morgan Chase, Your Juno, and Dawn Capital. So go check that out wherever you got this podcast, or why not queue it up in your podcast app after this one? Okay. Let's get on to our next story. So this one comes from The Guardian with a, an awful headline, really. Woman 91 loses account and pension after Barclays declares her dead. So an elderly woman was cut off from her money for three months and lost her phone line and energy supply when a banking error by Barclays marked her as deceased. So 91-year-old Marjorie Roper discovered that her pension and benefits payments had been stopped and her direct debits cancelled after a Barclays agent recorded that she had died and closed her account. Roper made two trips to her nearest Barclays branch and was told on both occasions by staff that she was recorded as dead. The bank refused to discuss the case with her daughter because her third-party authority had been revoked when the account was closed. The account was eventually reopened and her payments restored and backdated, but only after The Guardian intervened. Her phone line and energy supply had already been restored after Roper called her providers to explain. A Barclays spokesperson said, we apologize unreservedly for the distress and inconvenience 
this has caused to our loyal customer. Now, I don't want to trample all over Barclays too much, but this 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 is a really horrible story. And actually, my initial reaction uh, to that apology was, um, if 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 you're that apologetic, then why does it take you three months to get this resolved? And I understand that there's processes and all of that sort of stuff, but DBG, we need to we need to be uh, you know more accountable in better looking after our more vulnerable customers, right? We do, you know. I mean, as as you said earlier, maybe financial services has only been built for half the population, but 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 I think. I think in fairness to Barclays, this is an extremely difficult um, problem that a lot of uh, incumbent financial institutions do do actually face. And I think it's actually something that needs to be that needs to be talked about more. Yes, um, the big banks need to do a much better job um, at at fixing this. But some of the reasons why this is happening come down to extremely complicated. Um, databases. I mean, you know, I cannot count the amount of projects as a consultant over the years I've worked on 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 things like this. And and actually, when I when I heard the story, I was a little surprised. Not surprised, right? So you can imagine. And I don't I don't know what you know what the underlying reasons are for this for for this or or about Barclays context specifically. But you think of a big bank that's been around for fifty hundred years. You think about how its accounts are compiled from all sorts of different mergers and acquisitions, with bank accounts sitting at all sorts of different databases. I mean, you know, I've, you, you imagine somebody who opened an account in nineteen sixty, for example. At some point, that has been transcribed into into a database manually. So all over the world legacy incumbent banking institutions really do struggle with data quality. And if you imagine that a bank is set up for the happy path, it's set up for the mass market, you get very tragic incidences like this where people fall out of the journey. And when they fall out of the journey, the bank is unable to try to figure out how to how to get them back in. I mean, this is something that the FCA in the UK looks looks very looks looks down very dimly on, quite quite rightly. Um, and banks very regularly get called um, up to up to fix these these problems. Yeah, I mean, Michelle, I'm keen to get your thoughts because I know we talked about um, the role that Abound is playing in helping people say with thin credit files and sort of people that would otherwise maybe find it quite difficult or be excluded. Um, but how do we sort of make sure that um, other vulnerable customers, for example, the elderly, aren't being left behind by sort of banking services and, and, and obviously branch closures and all of those types of things? Yeah, I think the future of finance needs to be available to everyone. And that's why education and support across the banking ecosystem is very important. Accessible customer service is crucial to support this group. At Abound, we have been taking great care to help customers through the steps. We've had a very clear and transparent communication. We developed the simple tools to help customers understand their cost of borrowing. We are, we are also trying to you know, make it simple and easier for people to understand because sometimes when you talk about a very complicated like financial terms, not everyone, you know, not everyone found it's, um, it's easy to digest. Yes. I I completely agree. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, DBG, you talked to us a little bit about like what those those root causes are, and and absolutely those are there, and you can you can almost sort of see how that led to an issue like this. But then David Jarvis, um, 
I think I think M- Michelle makes a really good point that actually there was also a failure here in like customer service and actually helping um, helping her get this issue resolved and sort of getting her, her account back online. Yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting one. Um, as uh, DBG said earlier, like there are all of these um, weird little edge cases that people can find themselves in. I mean, like being declared dead when you're not dead, like feels like it probably actually has happened with sufficient frequency that like this should have a run book attached to it. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it, it ties into yeah, like the bank and the legal system are ultimately right. Like these weird kind of mirrors of real life. And if you try and document and structure everything so that it's a mirror of real life in a programmatic way that like systems and like core banking systems can support, it can be really challenging. Um, Like one of the um, early pieces of feedback we had when we started building our own core banking system uh, from the folks at Monzo was like, you need to remember that like what you are writing is a reflection of a political reality. Like you might think that a given address exists in a given country, but it's possible for that country to be invaded and for that territory to now be a part of a different country. It's possible for you to have created an account at a specific time in a specific time zone where the government of that country or or place decides, you know what, we're like, we're going to change what time zone we're in just unilaterally. Like, what does that mean? Um, So I think, um, I mean, I, I, I agree absolutely with everything that's been said about like the complete failure of sort of customer care here given that it's like, it's not, it's not like, this is not that hard of a problem to solve, right? It's like, person's in front of you, they can prove who they are, they're obviously not dead, like, come on. Um, but the the larger kind of meta problem of uh, expecting our trusted institutions to be perfect mirrors of the sort of weird realities of the world is um, a more challenging one, I think. Yeah, DBG, I can see you're like nodding your head furiously. I can see your... Uh very much sort of lining up with with David's point very much so I mean there's there's two kind of stories here you know one one story and, and this is your classic use case where fintech comes in and solves this problem right it says that you know here is the unhappy path here are the communities that are underserved let's come in and, and set up a service that that solves this problem and let's work with a, a bass provider like Griffin to do that and there's a plug um, but but it's kind of an interesting one because as companies scale exactly as David said they are going to hit against these problems and it's also a wider it's also a wider story with the technology industry in general i mean you look at companies like google and facebook having started as these very small edgy you know let's move fast and break stuff to actually becoming very very slow very overburdened institutions in of themselves as they rub against compliance international issues etc 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 so it's something to think about when and also from a fintech point of view profitability really comes from scale right so you know you need volumes of of lending volumes of deposit accounts to create the kind of profitability that that you need and when you hit that scale where you are profitable that's when you're going to go, start encountering some of these issues so you need to be baking them into your plans from from much earlier on yeah i i i think for me i have to bring it back though just to close this one on to the 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 human impact right i mean you have a 91-year-old woman who, I believe the root cause from this actually, from reading the story, was that she phoned Barclays to notify her, because this was a joint account, to notify them that her husband had died. They then mistakenly marked her as dead. They 
closed the account. Because then the account was closed, uh, the, the third party authority that her daughter had, who would normally handle this sort of stuff on her behalf, was lost. So they then wouldn't talk to her. The bank then notified all of the um, utility companies that she was dead to all of her, um, all of the utilities were switched off. And then there was no option for her but to catch two buses to a branch 23 miles away to talk to people that she didn't know. She brought all of the relevant documentation to prove, um, David, like your point, who she was and have everything rectified. But because she couldn't remember a four-digit PIN number that she has never actually been asked for and has never had to use, they weren't willing to engage. And I think actually, to your to your point, DBG, I think as well, which was a really good one, was about sort of duty of care. And, um, you know, I think there was a failure of that in that instance. So, um yeah, it's 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 a it's a scary story and one that sort of illustrates obviously how uh, how difficult these things can be uh, when you're in sort of crisis mode. Uh, David Jarvis, yeah, final word to you. It does raise questions though about Barclays' internal processes, right? Like, um, you, you should not be able to call someone up, tell them that you, like that can't happen. Like, someone can't call and tell you that they've died, <laughs> right? Like. And, and, and even if, even if someone has died, right, you would expect the bank to ask to be furnished with like a, a death certificate, right? Like, like some, some, some doc, like legally uh, valid documentary evidence to support that. Um, and yeah, it's just, it, it, I mean, uh, I think obviously a sort of comprehensive system failure within Barclays here, but like there, it's not that hard to think about like, what should have happened here. And it, it's surprising to me that it was able to happen in this way in the first place. Like it's astonishing to me that there wasn't some sort of check along the way that like, okay, cool. There are two people on this account. We've only been told one of them has died. Like where's the proof of the one who has died? Like it's just, um, it's a basic failure. You're right. I, I think, I think death needs to be talked about more um, and bereavement. I mean, if you think about that, there are financial products that actually only trigger when someone dies, right? Think about something like life insurance or um, a pension annuity. And so you'd think that the the industry would have by now tried to find some way to to solve this problem. And, and there are a few things out there, for example, like the death notification service launched in 2018, which allows you to alert six financial providers at the click of a button. So there's there's work being done to try to solve this problem, Ross, but um, probably not enough. Yeah, well, it's one um, hopefully that gets rectified um, in the more immediate term. Um, all right, I am going to move us on. So our next story, Western Union turns to MFS to expand global money transfers. So Western Union has teamed up with MFS Africa to allow mobile money transfers across the continent. The partnership will allow... Western Union users in 200 countries around the world to send funds to the more than 400 million mobile wallets in the MFS network, the companies said in a joint statement. The service will launch in Madagascar before moving to other African nations and comes as globally money transfer giant Western Union is working to expand its remittance balance business. Last week, Western Union launched a partnership with 7-Eleven Mexico to capture that country's $53 billion remittance market. So for a little more uh, context, we reach out to Kumar Shurav, Managing Director, MTOs at MFS Africa, to ask 
what does this partnership tell us about the relationship between traditional players and new fintechs in the African market? MFS Africa believes in making borders matter less. From a cross-border payments perspective, this means breaking long-standing borders that have existed between traditional players and new fintechs. Increasingly, industry players, both incumbent and challengers, have started to realize that the age of fintechs is the age of cooperation and partnership. MFS Africa's partnership with Western Union is a major step in this direction. Partnerships like these help create better, more economical and more efficient choices for the end customers who stand to benefit the most. Western Union has the largest cash payout network across the world and MFS Africa is the biggest digital payment gateway on the continent, connecting more than 400 million mobile wallets across roughly 40 markets of Africa. Partnerships like these also prove that different business models such as cash versus digital or mobile money can coexist and don't necessarily have to compete all the time. This partnership is a pivotal moment for the fintech world, especially in Africa, and will help both Western Union and MFS Africa move a few steps closer to making Africa's and Africans future brighter. Nice. It's a really good quote and lots of little bits I'd love to to sort of pull out and understand a little bit more. But um, Michelle, what was your uh, your sort of reaction first to uh, to this story? It's a pretty big one. I always thought West Union is is already quite international. I remember when I was in Singapore, um, it was there, and almost like a, like most countries I went to, there's West Union. Uh, I think I personally used it as well. I th- that kind of global expansion of the technology company is is the trend um and, and particularly for this kind of service like cross-border payments service west union it seems like a sensible movement um you know a movement to me yeah i listen i completely agree i think the new york times in 2006 described western union as the world's largest money transfer business but DBG, I guess since then we've seen um, a good amount of, of sort of disruption in this space, right? We've seen Wise and Remitly and others. Um, what do you think? Are, are Western Union still still the top dog, or are they uh, are they starting to lose a little bit uh, a little bit of ground? I don't think so. I mean, like in in two thousand and six, I, I think that was roughly the last time I actually used Western Union, if I'm honest. Um, and yes, it still has a place in. Um, physical locations, so physical agents all around the world, particularly in in locations that have very limited access to internet. Western Union still does provide an extremely reliable um, service and a vital service. But in many ways, it does feel a little bit like the Kodak um, of financial services, right? Um, And I'm kind of surprised that a partnership like this wasn't forthcoming way earlier as Wise and these other players, as you say, have have come to the fore. I think there will always be a place, I think, for sort of physical agent money transfers. And, and effectively, what this is allowing, I suppose, is that you could, you could deposit your money at a Western Union um, physical agent and also use their app and have that money then settled in any kind of um, mobile wallet that, that MFS provides and settle in, in PESA and all of these things, I'm sure. So it's very good. But I think the balance of power here very much lies, quite frankly, I would say, in MFS because you know they could also quite easily wire in all sorts of other different types of um, remittance, remittance services, and 
payments, as I was saying about the things that I've been thinking about a lot um, that keep me keep me up at night randomly. Cross-border remittances is one of the areas where I think over the next few years, we're going to be seeing a lot of innovation um, coming on down the line. Things like the ISO standards, for example, um, creating standardized payment messages all over the world. Um, it's going to take a long time, I think, for, for these systems to to stitch up together, but we are seeing initiatives take place like UPI in India with Singapore, for example, um, and, and others that extend real-time payment systems that exist within country across border. So it's a very fascinating and dynamic space um, at the moment. And Western Union, I, I wonder where they, where they feature in this. Yeah, no, I agree. And look, you know, cross-border payments are hard, right? And the correspondent banking model isn't ideal, but it's probably the best solution that we've sort of come up with. Um, David Jarvis, interested in your uh, in your thoughts on what DBG has said about, I thought the, the Kodak comparison was interesting. Do you, is that sort of how, how you see it as well? And do you think that partnerships like these are going to keep Western Union sort of relevant, I guess, to DBG's question? Yeah, I, I love that comparison. That's that's like Italian chef kiss. Wow, that's so good. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's interesting, right? Like one of the fundamental questions, right, is like often one of the things that uh, companies that are uh, sort of legacy or at, at, at scale try to do is to continue to leverage the fact that they have distribution Um by sort of bringing on additional capabilities that they can just distribute really quickly. Um, but what's kind of interesting about like cross-border payments is that distribution is the business model, <laughs> kind of like by itself, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's just kind of interesting to think that like, I don't know, they're, they're buying like, yes, they're buying capabilities, but they're kind of also buying more distribution. Like it's not clear which of these players is like buying the other's distribution and which is buying the other's capabilities. Um, it's a really interesting partnership. Yeah, I agree. And Michelle, do you think there's like a, is there a financial inclusion angle here? Is this like extending, you know, more formal financial services and payments to to people that might otherwise um, find it hard to access? I think the the digital payment itself is actually a very interesting area. Like, um, like in, in Europe and the developed country, for example, people still like using credit card, but in some developing country like Southeast Asia, China, that kind of digital payment via WeChat or Alipay is way more developed than the developing countries. And it's also much more convenient. I personally use that a lot. It's much more convenient. Um, I, there's a lot of reasons why it is actually more developed in the developing countries than the developed country, because like in South Asia or China, um, not many people, like it's, not, it's like still a lot of people at that time don't have a bank card or credit card, but everybody has a mobile phone. So for them, use a mobile phone to do that kind of payment is like a shift, a, like a straight, a straight transition. But in Europe, when I'm 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 here in, I'm here living in the UK, I actually prefer just take a physical card and you know I don't have to open my app and do the transaction. So I think it's, payment is a very interesting thing, actually. Yeah, I think that's just such a, a such a, such a good sense of perspective in terms of I suppose how far we've come, how far the market has come. Um, I guess building on that. I'll close it out with some um, some stats, maybe uh, DBG, that sort of illustrate your Kodak comparison. So Western Union was founded in 1851, right? So that is a cool 172 years ago. 
um, in comparison, MFS Africa was founded by uh, the end of 2008, right? So only 15 years ago. When, when Western Union reached their 15th year, it was 1866, they bought out their biggest competitor in the telegram business and the American Civil War, the American Civil War had just ended. So, you know, I mean, um, two, two, two sort of ends of history, but one absolutely to keep an eye on sort of as we move forward. Um, okay, uh, so now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy. A quick fire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Uh, David, maybe you want to get us started. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so the first one. Your Juno partners with Wealthify to bring financial education to women and non-binary people. Your Juno, a financial education platform that started off as a newsletter and a Slack channel just two years ago, is now partnering with Wealthify to help women and non-binary people gain financial confidence. Founded by sisters Alexia and Margot de Broglie, I hope I pronounced that okay, <laughs> the platform has grown into a thriving community of more than 50,000 women and non-binary people and a space for users to learn and ask questions about finance without judgment. Your Juno aims to become the financial education and confidence partner of the financial industry. The platform has more than 350 lessons covering a whole spectrum of personal finance, from starting a budget to negotiating salary. Together, your Juno and Wealthify are offering customers free access to the platform for one year with the code Wealthify, hoping to empower more people to get their finances in order. I think this is just such such an amazing example. Research has shown, I think, time and time again, certainly in the projects that I've been involved in, that incumbent financial institutions really have a trust problem when it comes to giving financial advice. And of course, there's all sorts of limitations that banks really face from a regulatory point of view in, in doing that. And also from a, from a human to human point of view, people trust advice and recommendations from peers and people in their community that they, that, that they trust the most. And it's so wonderful to see a lot of innovation taking place in this, in this area. And I hope to see more of this. Yeah, likewise. And I don't think I'm in any position to tell you whether your pronunciation was correct, but I really did enjoy it. Okay, uh, our next one uh, comes from Metro Bank. So uh, the bank is setting branches up as a safe spaces for domestic abuse victims. So Metro Bank store colleagues have been trained to offer a safe space for domestic abuse victims, many of whom are also victims of economic abuse by their partners. The initiative is part of the UK Say No More campaign, which is calling for the end of domestic abuse, which impacts nearly 2 million people every year in the UK. Metro Bank has run a successful pilot rolling out safe spaces across several of its stores. From March, 48 Metro Bank stores offer the safe spaces scheme. This will give anyone experiencing or at risk of domestic abuse the opportunity to safely call a helpline, support service or loved one. Uh, to find a little more about how the service works in practice, we reached out to Anna Dekodu, member of the Women on Work Committee, which is one of Metrobank's inclusion networks. The best way for people to access our safe space service is simply by asking in store, in other words, a Metrobank branch. Anyone who is experiencing domestic abuse can walk into one of the 48 participating Metro Bank stores and ask to use its safe space. We open seven days a week, evenings and weekends, and are accessible on the high street. 
The colleagues in our stores have been trained to help. You simply need to go to the counter or ask any colleague in store. A colleague will then guide you to the safe space. You can expect our colleagues to be empathetic and supportive. Our Metro Bank colleagues will not deliver the specialist support, but they will be confident responding to a disclosure of domestic abuse with absolutely no judgment. Once inside, you can use the safe space in whichever way works for you, as they provide a safe and discreet way to reach out to friends and family, contact specialist support services, and start your journey to recovery. There is no limit to how many times someone can ask to use the safe space. It is there for them as often as they need it. Anyone who is experiencing domestic abuse can find out about all the safe spaces across the country from the UK Says No More website. It's UKSaysNoMore.org. There, they can find the nearest safe space just by inputting their postcode into the website. So this, for me, is just a great example of, of Metro Bank really reimagining the role of, of bank branches in the community, right? I think going beyond just the provision of, of financial products and services, actually into to helping to address what are real and really important societal issues. So I think something like this really could be a lifeline for people in vulnerable positions, I guess, good on Metro Bank for, for sort of making it happen, I guess. It should hopefully, you know, it'd be great if the rest of the industry looked at this and sort of followed Metro Bank's lead, right? Um, because I think safe spaces for for vulnerable people, I think, um, you know, hugely, hugely important. So, so kudos to those guys. Um, okay, let's bring everybody back in for the final section, which always looks at a more lighthearted story from the last week. So this story uh, actually comes from TikTok and, uh, with a headline, people are posting their failed Monzo applications on TikTok. Um, so a growing trend on uh, the social media platform sees people posting their failed attempts to self-record a video asking for a Monzo account. So the UK Challenger Bank asks for a number of KYC or Know Your Customer checks when applying for a current account, one of which includes potential customers recording a video of themselves saying, my name is, for example, Ross, and I would like a Monzo account. One TikTok user posted their video along with the caption, this has to be the cringiest video people have to film. Another TikToker filmed themselves getting halfway through the sentence before bursting out laughing. Comments on the video include, my BF recently got one, i.e. a Monzo card. And honestly, this gives me the ick thinking about him doing this followed by multiple crying face emojis. I've said a lot of things in this chair on this podcast that I never thought I would say. And, and that, that has to go pretty high on the list. Um, I think we've got, yeah, we do. We've got a snippet of, uh, of one of those failed attempts. So let's listen to it right now. Hi, my name is Ella Harrison and I want a Monzo. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. That really is. Um, oh, I don't even know which one of the panelists to go to because everybody's genuinely in hysterics. Um, DBG, I'll come to you. I mean, what is this story? Help. I mean, I totally relate to this. 
Um, and I'm sure all of you do as well. So I, I bank with Starling, and um, they require something similar whenever you forget your password if you need to make a need to make a payment. And I can tell you right now, I have done so many of these videos in some very awkward awkward settings. I think once I had a little bit too much to drink at a pub and realized I needed to send uh, some money to someone, forgot my password and recorded something something very very similar. It is very very strange. But I wonder whether I wonder whether the story here is 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 more about the changing customer behavior. We're so used to being able to get what we want on the fly with a mobile app that will authenticate us and and you know get us a bank account like while I'm on the bus or you know while I'm eating my lunch. Um, and so, you know, a bank does need some form of KYC and a video is a good way of getting that KYC. If I was to apply for a bank account 10 or 15 years ago, I'd probably go into a branch. It would be very formal. Now I'm eating my breakfast uh, in my pajamas, right? So that's kind of a an interesting behavior change. Not right now, just to be clear. Um, no. <laughs> but it, and, 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 and to your point, right, because it's a really good one. Banks, you know, it was easy. You used to go into a branch, you'd bring your ID, someone was there, they could look at your ID, they could look at you and they could say confidently, yes, that's DBG, we can give them an account. And actually, you know, it, when you're one step removed in a, in a sort of digital context, actually that, that becomes an awful lot more difficult. So we need, um, we need creative solutions to, to, to sort of to be able to do that. Um, David Jarvis, what, what were your thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, um, so I think, we should split this out from KYC, actually, because really, um, like, uh, if you think about it as like a general security process, you have authentication, which is like, am I the person that I claim to be? And then you have authorization, which is, do I want you to do this? Or do I have the rights to do this? Right. And um, these kind of video selfies are really good at authorization, right? Because you like it, it, someone can steal your passport. They can't steal like a custom video of you. Of, of the actual, I mean, let's aside, you know, the AI chat GPT, like deep fakes that are, they're all coming, but like a lot of the SDKs around um, these uh, types of little videos include all kinds of weird little liveness checks that, that at least for right now seem um, resistant to that. And, uh, you know, I like, I think back to what we were talking about earlier on the show, right? Like the, the sort of <clears throat> um, like, how do I know you're you? How do I know what you want me to do? Like, Expecting someone and record like knowledge-based authentication, expecting a 91-year-old woman to know the pin from an account she set up 20 years ago, 30, 60 years ago, who knows, right? Um, sucks. Like it's a it's a bad security model. And it's and it's a bad security model in large part because it's really bad like for the customer, right? Whereas, you know, if 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 instead of insisting that she have the pin, like they were just like, oh, well, you're obviously physically here. Like asking to do this, like that should be enough of an authorization process. So I don't know. I mean, I, it's funny. It's cute. Um, I get that. Um, I don't know. It's, it's like a little cringe, but like as security models go, like, I think it's like actually a pretty good one. Yeah, I agree. I agree with everything that you said. Um, Michelle, f- final word to you on this one. What was your reaction? My reaction is uh, fraud detection is a big thing in financial service. Like in at Abound, we every month, like any lending companies, every month we have hundreds or even thousands of uh, fraud attempt. Um, people trying to use someone else's name, someone's credential. 
in the last two years of lending, we only have one successful fraud, and it's because the technology using the open banking and AI is very, very powerful. In addition to a much better credit decisioning, it's also a very powerful fraud detection tool. I think my reaction is that uh, um, I think, you know, with that kind of a new technology and a new data, we should all collectively thinking about different ways to, you know, to, to detect fraud. Yeah, completely agree. New ways to detect fraud that don't give people the ick. And I'm gonna I'm gonna close us on that. Um so that wraps up this week's news show. Um guys, thank you uh all so much for joining. Let's go around and just uh find out where people can learn a little bit uh more about about you guys. So uh David Barton Grimley, let's start with you. LinkedIn at David BG, although I should probably change that to DBG. Why not? Yeah, why not? Um, David Jarvis, what about you? Yeah, I think LinkedIn's probably the place too. Uh, w David Jarvis. Nice, nice. Okay, cool. And um, Michelle, how about you? Um, you can find us from our website, getabound.com, or I'm also on LinkedIn, Michelle He, H E is my surname. Excellent. Okay. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Ross Gallagher 07. And of course, thank you as always for listening. Uh, Do join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.